Welcome to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday afternoon news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. We are recording this episode on Saturday, August 13th, and it will begin airing on Sunday, August 14th, 2022. My name is Reese Robinson, and I'm on air today with my co-hosts, Jasmine Smith and Emily Scott. What's going on, Jasmine? Hey, Reese. As always, I'm hanging in there, you know, enjoying what's left of summer. We got a month and some change left in the season. Yeah, yeah, I feel you. It does seem like it went a little fast, right? Yeah, I mean, now that I'm not in school anymore, I always try to remind myself, like, I don't have to go by the academic calendar with when school ends. So this is the time you start seeing a lot of back to school stuff. But I'm always like, they can't, they can't hurt me anymore. (laughs) I'm not a student. I'm not, you know, it's not over at the beginning of September. We got until the 22nd of next month. So it's going, but I, you know, there's still a lot of the season left, so I'm trying to, you know, take it one day at a time. Absolutely. Yeah, I feel the same. I don't feel like I had a chance to, like, really enjoy anything just yet this summer because I've just been in this transition. But um, whatever. We still got a little longer, so I will work a little harder to do so in the coming weeks. All right. So on the docket for today's episode... Our local news story will be about efforts to fix New York City's trash problem. For national news, we'll be discussing a man who tried to break into the Ohio FBI office. Our world news story is about Russia confirming a prisoner swap with us, with the U.S. for Brittany Griner. And our good news story is about Maine meeting its greenhouse gas reduction goals. So we're going to go ahead and kick off our episode today with the local news segment. Emily, you're up. Hey guys, Emily here with the local news for the week. Uh, So this story comes from an August 6th New York Times article by Dodai Stewart, Dodai Stewart titled, How New York City Hopes to Win Its Long Losing War on Trash. Can Social Media and Rat-Resistant Receptacles Help Clean Up the City? The article explains, quote, For the city, social media campaigns and rat-resistant receptacles are just the latest attempts to solve a New York City quandary that is more than a century old. What do you do with millions of people's trash every day? The city's clean curbs curbs pilot program involves a deceptively simple proposal for dealing with the bags of trash that New Yorkers often see waiting to be picked up on sidewalks and corners. Put them in a bin. Sanitation officials placed a few sealed rat-resistant sheds for trash bags in front of businesses in late June and mid-July. There are two more sheds near Times Square and two on Montague Street. The containers are from Brooklyn-based company CityBin, and more are on the way. A pilot program for residential blocks will roll out in the fall, starting in Hell's Kitchen. It's not a silver bullet, said Joshua Goodman, the Assistant Commissioner for Public Affairs at the Department of Sanitation. Still, containerization, uh, storing bags of trash in containers instead of leaving them on the curb for pickup, could make streets and sidewalks cleaner. So the city is currently conducting a test across all five boroughs, removing ahead with a $1.3 million plan to pilot bins of different kinds and configurations, Mr. Goodman said. And that means both the bin itself as well as what's inside it and how it gets serviced. Experimenting with ways to tackle trash is not new. An article published in the New York Times in August 1873 listed which specific blocks were unclean with street dirt, rubbish, and garbage. 
Almost a century later, in 1967, a Times headline declared that the city is fighting a losing battle against garbage-strewn and littered streets. In its never-ending battle against refuse, the city has dealt with protests and strikes, as well as job cuts to the sanitation department, all while attempting to upgrade its weapons in the fight. In 1961, it gave scooters to sanitation workers so they could track down litter bugs, as a promising 20-something writer named Gay Talese reported, reported at the time. In 1969, the city started putting garbage in plastic bags. A few years later, it introduced new, supposedly better trash cans. Still, the problems persisted. Even New York's recycling program has at times proved difficult to manage. For clean curbs, the city has issued specifications for the type of container to be used, and so far, the sheds made by City Bin are the ones being tested. Among other requirements, the containers must be non-flammable and fully enclosed, and they must not obstruct hydrants or crosswalks. City bins come in multiple sizes with different numbers of lockable doors. Recently, the New York Post reported that one of the bins in Times Square was leaking garbage juice, juice into the street. Tweaks are continuing through the pilot. That's what a pilot is about, said Liz Picarazzi, the founder and chief executive of City Bin. Everything from the screws and latches to the leveling feet are being tested and refined, and the design is modular. The bin sitting on West 41st Street has already had its doors replaced. There are just so many challenges. This gets at a handful of ways that New York is not harder than other cities, but just different, Mr. Goodman said, and why you can't necessarily just copy-paste what exists elsewhere. The sanitation department has around 10,000 employees, making it the country's largest municipal trash hauling agency. Each worker, rough, uh, each worker lifts roughly 10 tons of trash or recycling per day. Working for the department is one of the most dangerous jobs in the city. Lifting and throwing garbage bags takes a physical toll, and about once a month, Mr. Goodman said, a sanitation worker is threatened or assaulted. Then there's the honking by impatient drivers trapped behind trash collection trucks. Quote, I'd be curious to do a waste audit and see what exactly is in those bins, said Anna Sachs, an environmental activist and waste expert who posts on TikTok as the trash walker. Ms. Sachs said she would like to see sidewalks cleared of trash bags, but she had some concerns about the container proposal. She expects the bins in the pilot would hold mostly single-use disposable coffee cups, for example, which points to the need for reuse. For reuse. You should have these recyclable, uh, reusable cup systems. In addition, Ms. Sachs wondered about the New Yorkers who survive on what is left at the curb. We need to think through the impact on people who make their income redeeming the cans, she said. The Department of Sanitation is also planning to require residences and businesses to put bags out later in the day, 8 p.m. instead of 4 p.m., to minimize the number of hours that rats have access to them. And that is where I'm going to leave that story. Um, pretty interesting stuff. I mean... It's it's cool to know that the city is still trying to <laughs> clean it up, even though in my mind it's like it's New York is just it's the dirtiest city I've ever been in. Um, and I don't know. I haven't been to maybe that many cities, but um, yeah, it's it's very dirty and it feels like it's just the fabric of the city, you know, like the layers and layers of grime on the subway. Um, but it's good to know that people aren't being fatalist about it, I guess. Thanks so much for that story, Emily. Uh, definitely. A real issue in New York. That's one thing I do not miss is the summer trash situation. But I guess this is an attempt to try to make it better. Um, you know, it's going to probably take a lot of hands to make this an actual effective project. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it, it seemed like from the article, the main focus was um, rats or it's being unsightly or smelling bad and the potential for rats to get into it. But what I kept thinking about was that um, like a lot of other issues that bother us as far as, you know, what you can see, it's so much bigger than just things being like unpleasant. It's like the root of the problem isn't that it's visible or it smells bad. I think, you know, we do have to confront like the amount of trash that we generate just in general, because it does have to go somewhere and we're going, we're running out of space. And a lot of the stuff that we throw out does hurt the environment. Like, so even if it's not unsightly, even if it's kept in like a special bin or something like that, where is it going at the end of the day? Right. It definitely seems like a sort of band-aid solution for, you know, all kind of problems that are deeply rooted in, you know, overcrowding, uh, a lot of waste, uh, the, st- the stuff that people have access to within the city limits as well affect things like that. Uh, obviously, the level of people who now um, are without homes, it's a lot of moving parts to this problem. So I don't know if some bins is really going to make an impact, I guess is what I'm trying to say too. But then again, like, how do you make an impact? Like, where would be a good place to start to really deal with this issue, you think? I think a few weeks ago, I don't remember exactly when, but I think Emily did another story that was related to composting. Okay. And I know at the Brooklyn Botanical Garden, like they have a whole like section where it's like educating people about what garbage composting is. And I believe you can request a bin from the city either, I guess if it's for your private home, I don't know if it exists if you live in like an apartment building or something. But I do feel that um, just th- just trying to think of like the bigger picture and longer range issues like with climate and the things like these forever chemicals that are leaching into the rainwater and stuff like this, it's a direct result of how much of the things that we use are like disposable, but disposable things that are not na- found in nature, you know, so I think we have to there has to be like a cultural shift in like how we deal with waste and packaging and things like this, which obviously is a lot harder to do than just changing the bins. But I would say that, you know, just the compost stuff was a, would be a good first step, like to incentivize uh, more education around that, making that an accessible option, because at the moment it's kind of like the only people who can do that, you have to have enough money and enough space on your own to be able to do it. But, you know, I'm sure a lot of people that are poor or who, you know, live intergenerationally or don't have a lot of room, like they also would like to be able to participate in stuff like that, but it's not made available to everyone, you know, but I think that would be a good step towards like raising people's consciousness about like, Hey, like it's not sustainable for, I think in the U.S., like out of every country in the world, I think we produce the most garbage, you know, even compared to other places where there's way more people. And then we send our garbage to those places. So we don't like to see it on our street. You know, these are things washing up in other communities around the world, ruining their environment, you know, so. Yeah. 
It's and and that sucks because like who can really do that to us? Not to say that we should, but just a thought. Like we wouldn't have it no other way, you know. And it's really awful. But I agree. I think that um, since I've been on the West Coast, I do notice like there are composting um, cans available, like random city parks and on campus and stuff like that. So it's definitely an effort, obviously, out here um, to do it. And it's funny because it's like every time I throw something away, I have to like give myself that question, like, okay, which bin should I put this in? And it just goes to show like how much we really don't know, you know, like and and. It doesn't matter where you're from or anything. People can learn to be better if there's opportunities for get them to get the information. And if right. the city commits to making sure that those options are open for them, that there are places where you can compost and you don't have to make a big production out of it. Because that's part of it, right? Some people actually do it. But in order to deposit your compost or to do it, it's not a lot of places that are um, available for you to actually do that. So that's another part as well. Yeah, for sure. And like, shout out to, you know, all the people that work for the Department of Sanitation. I know that's a dangerous job for real. Right. We're going to go ahead and go to our first music break of the day before hopping into our national and world news story. The first track this weekend is called War Dance and it's by Coco Roco. We'll be right back.
Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And next up, we'll have Jasmine with our national news story. So this is a, a bit of a side story from a very big um, national story that's broken recently. Uh, this is from PBS.org. Um, it's about a man who was killed trying to break into the Ohio FBI office. Um, he appeared to threaten agents in social media posts. Uh, and this article was published on August the 12th. So as of recording this, it came out yesterday. Um, Wilmington, Ohio, a gunman who died in a shootout after trying to get inside the FBI Cincinnati office appeared to have posted calls on social media for FBI agents to be killed and for people to take up arms and be ready for combat. In the wake of the search at Donald Trump's home, a law enforcement official said, federal investigators are examining social media accounts they believe are tied to the gunman, 42-year-old Ricky Schiffer, and posts that urge violence against the F after the FBI entered Mar-a-Lago in Florida, according to the official, who was not authorized to discuss the investigation publicly and spoke to the Associated Press on condition of an an anonymity. At least one of the social media messages appeared to have been posted after Schiffer tried to breach the FBI office. It said, if you don't hear from me, it is true I tried attacking the FBI, according to the official. On Trump's truth social media platform, at Ricky W. Schiffer Jr. had posted a quote-unquote call to arms and urged people to arm themselves and be ready for combat after the search. Authorities are also looking into whether Schiffer had ties to far-right extremist groups such as the Proud Boys, the official said. Schiffer was armed with a nail gun and an AR-15 style rifle when he tried to breach the vis visitor screening area at the FBI office Thursday, according to the official. Schiffer fled when agents confronted him. He was later spotted by a state trooper along Interstate 71 and got into a gun battle that ended in his death, state police said. The burst of violence unfolded amid FBI warnings that federal agents could face attacks following the search in Florida. The FBI is investigating the attack as an act of domestic extremism, according to the law enforcement official. Schiffer is believed to have been in Washington in the days leading up to the January 6, 2021 insurrection and may have been at the Capitol that day but was not charged with any crimes in connection with the riot, the official said. Officials have warned of a rise in right-wing threats against federal agents since the FBI entered Trump's estate and what authorities said was part of an investigation into whether he took classified documents with him after leaving the White House. Supporters of the former president have railed against the search, 
accusing the FBI and the Justice Department of using the legal system as a political weapon. FBI Director Christopher Wray denounced the threats as he visited another FBI office in Omaha, Nebraska on Wednesday saying, violence against law enforcement is not the answer no matter who you're upset with. The FBI on Wednesday also warned its agents to avoid protesters and ensure their security key cards are not visible outside FBI space citing an increase in social media threats against bureau personnel and offices. Schiffer was a registered Republican who voted in the 2020 primary from Columbus, Ohio, and in the 2020 general election from Tulsa, Oklahoma, according to public records. Court records show the Ohio Department of Taxation filed suit against him in June, seeking a $553 tax lien judgment, according to court records listing him at an address in St. Petersburg, Florida. He also previously lived at several addresses in Columbia, in Columbus, and in Omaha, Nebraska. So yeah, that's the end of um, this write-up that was on PBS uh, via the Associated Press. And I just think it's such a succinct example of how unhinged so many people have become in this country where that seemed like a worthwhile way to essentially commit suicide, like if you're going into a federal building with that intent, like I don't know what you could be thinking, believing that you're gonna make that out, like make make it out of that situation alive. So, you know, very disturbing that there's people who are so attached to the former president that they're willing to do these types of things. I agree. And that just shows that, you know, he still has such a reach. And I feel like people, you know, if he doesn't go to jail or if he does, actually, you know, it probably would be worse, honestly, if he did get locked up, I think, um, unfortunately, because people will react to that and, and they're reacting just by this simple thing. Just imagine what would happen. But yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's a weird like level of um, disturbance would people take out things on behalf of other people who clearly probably does not care about them at all. But um, it's really sad to know that that type of influence is just like spiraling out there and people are willing to risk their lives for some bullshit, like straight up, you know, it's, I don't know. It's crazy. I, but I do want to imagine what will happen if he gets arrested, if that ever happens. Yeah, I mean, I I agree with you, and it, it it's not exactly the same situation, obviously. But I'm I don't know if you've been following what happened with the the attack on Sal, on Sam Salman Rushdie that happened in Western New York, like, and that's just to me another example of you have these people that are alienated and they're so committed to I don't know, like, just following. Yeah, that's what I was saying. You know, some a person that they'll never meet in a million years like but there'll be some stranger across the world that says to do something and they'll be like yeah I'm gonna you know and they'll throw their life away for that and it's so I I think the word for it is stochastic terror because it's not really organized in the way that people think of it but if you have enough high in like influential people with a platform 
putting out certain rhetoric over and over and over again, eventually there'll be enough disaffected people with nothing to lose, with nothing going for them that will take you up on it and they'll sacrifice themselves like for just for nothing, you know, for a former reality TV star who has how many failed businesses is a despicable human being and you're throwing your life in the trash for that. Like what's going on? Like what's really going on? You know, right. That level of disturbance is, is scary, you know, because the other part of that is if people can believe something so hideous, they can also believe something so good, you know, but unfortunately we don't, we don't see a lot of that. Unfortunately, we don't see the results of those things, I guess, or maybe that's just the status quo. Yeah. I mean, it it would be, it would be great if a lot of this energy could be turned towards community self-improvement, you know, things to something positive, but you know, people would rather devote that energy, you know, that, physical force and put all of the power that they have behind just these black energy sucks of like destruction. And it's, it's so, so scary. And like, they would rather lash out than heal themselves, you know? And I think you see not that, you know, women can't also be a part of it, but a lot of these actions that you see happening around this country, a lot of it is men a lot of it is white men, but like men of other races are also joining in on it. You know, just this sense of insecurity or like you're losing something because other people have rights or are able to be, you know, more open parts of society and you're so threatened by that. And instead of growing, yeah, you head towards, you know, these types of actions or like these really dark conspiracy theories it's scary. And like, I, I do think if he does go to jail, he'll be, it'll be bad, you know, as far as people's responses. But I honestly think even if you look back to what happened after the civil war, I think the consequences are worse when you don't crack down hard on people. Like when you give people a slap on the wrist for doing some really wild shit, all that does is allow it to fester and grow and evolve into something else. And the stuff that they're finding that he took from that White House and all the other horrible things that he's done, I think it, it will be worse if you see no consequence. Yeah. Eventually. Yeah, well, we'll see what happens. Definitely something to... I mean, we all were watching every day to see if anything happens, but I feel like they're closer now than they've ever been, but whatever. Uh, But I just definitely know there'll be a whole bunch of fucking fallout after that happens for sure. So. Yeah. It's like a damned if you do damned if you don't situation, just like in general, it's like you have, you make progress in certain parts of society and then you can't even be fully happy because you know, there's going to be a backlash and a violent one because of that progress. But then when the backlash happens, I don't know. It's just exactly. either way, there's going to be someone unhappy, willing to pull a trigger and do something foolish behind this exactly. clown. Exactly. Uh, all right. It's time for a break. We are going to take our next music break. The track is called Twin Flame and it's by Ketronada. We'll be right back. 
You can follow our social media accounts. We have an Instagram account and we also have a Facebook account. Our Facebook page can be found at facebook.com forward slash objection radio 
free BK, no spaces, no punctuation. Our Instagram account is at objection to the rule. Again, no spaces, no punctuation marks. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Um, and this story is taken from the cbssports.com website. Um, the title of the article is Russia Confirms Prisoner Swap Negotiations with United States Involving WNBA Star Brittany Griner. Uh, Griner was found guilty on drug charges and sentenced to nine and a half years in prison last week. The author of this article is Isabel Gonzalez. For the first time since WNBA star Brittany Griner's arrest for drug possession in February, Russia has officially confirmed that there are ongoing negotiations with the United States government regarding a potential prisoner swap. The Washington Post was first to report the development. Instructions were given to authorized structures to carry out negotiations, Russian Foreign Ministry spokesman Ivan Nuchavev said Thursday. They are being conducted by competent authorities. Last week, Griner was found guilty on drug charges in Russia and was sentenced to nine and a half years in prison. She has been in custody since her arrest on February 17th at an airport near Moscow for having vape cartridges containing hashish oil, a marijuana concentrate, in her luggage. Her lawyers plan to appeal, but the United States government has also been trying to help. After her sentencing... President Joe Biden told the media he was hopeful about the situation. In May, his administration declared Griner to be wrongfully detained. Last month, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken confirmed that the U.S. government has put a substantial proposal on the table for Griner's release, although no details have been given. Although Russia confirmed this week that the negotiations were underway, it didn't disclose any details of who would be involved in the swap. However, Multiple outlets have reported Griner and Corporate Security Director Paul Whelan would be a part of the deal in exchange for Victor Bout, a convicted arms dealer who is currently serving a 25-year prison sentence in the U.S. Whelan is serving a 16-year prison sentence in Russia after being arrested in 2018 and convicted of spying in 2020. The Biden administration also considers Whelan to be wrongfully detained. While talks between Russia and the U.S. have been ongoing for months, Russian officials have preferred to not make it their discussion, not make this discussion public. Russian Foreign Minister Sergey Sergey Lavrov, sorry Sergey Lavrov, and Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov have both said they prefer the discussions between the two countries to be private, only taking place through an established communication channel that Biden and Vladimir Putin established in June 2021 when they met in Geneva. The U.S. has already made mistakes trying to solve such problems via microphone diplomacy. They are not solved that way, Peskov said earlier this month. So there's a little bit more to the story, but um, I think that's enough for discussion. I think I find this story a little bit interesting the way that it's being played out. Obviously, you know, Brittany has been sucked there through everything that's been happening through Ukraine. And the fact that, you know, she has such a minimal amount of, of hashiv oil on her. A, um, she has hashiv oil. There we go. Thank you. Hashish. Um, hashi? Hashish. 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 <laughs> yeah, what you said. Okay. <laughs> anyway, she's... um. 
she's she had a really small amount and they're making such a huge deal out of this but i just i really worry about her safety you know um and her mind frame her mindset being stuck there and detained during this crazy time on that country and you know with everything being done so differently between the two nations this could take forever like this could really like drag out way longer than they're talking about in the news and it's really sad yeah i mean i feel for her and her loved ones because it's definitely i I would never want to spend a day inside of a prison in the u.s let alone in a foreign country especially you know you're in a foreign country that is you know not exactly an ally to your home country like you're just whatever you do there's going to be a a desire to make an example out of you um, for political reasons. So I am hopeful that this deal goes through. Like, I don't really see any other way for it to end other than for there to be a prisoner swap. Um, so yeah, I'm hopeful that this will at least have a good, a good outcome in the end for her and her loved ones. And she won't, you know, have to do any serious time because, oh boy, Nine years in a Russian prison? I think not. Exactly. And I can only, you know, like I said, this is when things like that, crazy things happen to people when there's those situations where nobody, you know, you don't speak the language, like all kind of things can happen. And I'm just so concerned for her. So I hope this does go through sooner than later. Yeah, like she's not only is she black, she's also black and a lesbian. Like Russia is not kind to black people it's not kind to queer people and she's also a u.s citizen at the worst time to be a u.s citizen in that particular country so she's got a lot of strikes against her being in there right now so the sooner they can do something to get her out the better i just hope it's not dragged out too long exactly exactly All right. Well, Emily, do you have some good news for us, please? It's Emily again here with the good news this week. So I found the story via the Future Earth Instagram accounts Good News Tuesday Roundup, uh, one of my favorite things on Instagram. And it comes from an August 3rd article by Joseph Winters on the Grist titled Maine Met Its Climate Goal. The article explains, quote, the pine tree state is on track to reach its greenhouse gas reduction goals, according to a new report by the state's Department of Environmental Protection, or DEP. The report released last week shows that Maine slashed climate pollution to 25 percent below 1990 levels by 2019, far surpassing its medium term pledge to get emissions 10 percent below 1990 levels by January 1st, 2020. This year's report was also the first to quantify the impact of Maine's natural carbon sinks, uh, finding that 75% of the state's uh, gross greenhouse gas emissions are being offset by carbon capturing forest fields and wetlands. State officials say the progress bodes well for Maine's future climate goals, including its statutory requirements to reduce emissions by 45% below 1990 levels by 2030 and 80% by 2050. Uh, Maine is making welcome progress in reducing harmful carbon emissions and in curbing our reliance on expensive fossil fuels, Governor Janet Mills, a Democrat, said in a statement. The news from Maine offers a beacon of hope for regional and municipal climate action. And, quote, to be sure, Maine still has work to do. 
According to the report, the state still leans on petroleum for much of its energy needs, and sectors like transportation and residential buildings still generate significant climate pollution. Stacy Knapp, Emissions Inventory Sector Manager for the DEP, uh, told me, meaning the author, um, these sectors are low-hanging fruit. For further action, she said, Maine can now implement recommendations laid out in a 2020 roadmap called Maine Won't Wait, which offers a path toward more energy-efficient homes, better electric vehicle infrastructure, and other emission-slashing shifts. So that's really exciting stuff. Um, you know, I think often we consider action, like, you know, agreements toward actions, good enough news, but actually hearing that those results are working in real life is very, very exciting. Awesome. That's so great. Thank you so much for that story. Yeah, definitely. Whenever we reach like milestones with the environment, I feel like, you know, that should be like national news. It should set an example for other places to try to achieve those goals. There should be think tanks to see how that sort of progress can be made, even if it's regionally. You know, we're supposed to be these United States, but everybody moves at their own pace. And I feel like, you know, when we have successes with the environment or anything that can actually uh, promote sustainability for humans, society, animals, anything at all, um, that information needs to be on a loudspeaker and shared. You know, it needs to be modeled and drafted and, you know, uh, other places need to be challenged to reach those same levels of success. Yeah, and I I do think it kind of circles back to what we talked about in the local news story about how, you know, I think like the average person, if, if you give them a way to do the right thing or to do the better thing for the environment, they'll do it. But if it's not clear, like what the pathway is, then it's not as likely to happen or the only people that Um, are able to really commit to it are people that might be super intrinsically motivated or have the time or the energy. But uh, I do think that a state meeting its goal shows the importance of acting on the local level, the state level, and that, you know, these things are not impossible. It just takes a coordinated effort. So yeah, definitely to your point, like it should get more press it should be encouraged. And I think it does give people more hope that like there are steps that they can take in their day-to-day life to help make this a reality. Cause I don't know about you, but it's like, I think climate problems are probably in my top three of like existential dread type things. Cause we see what's happening so rapidly around us. Like we need to we need to have a a roadmap or something of how to get out of this, or at least to, you know, stop it from accelerating so fast. I agree. There needs to be definitely more cohesion on local and national um, and state government levels, I think. And it also helps to share, like we've both been saying, um, how is this goal reached and what can be the next steps taken for your neighbor? So, you know, definitely something. And I agree. Like, I'm I'm very concerned about the environment as well. I do feel like when I was, I was thinking about this the other day, like when I was a kid, how was the messaging about the environment when I was growing up as opposed to how I receive it now? I definitely think it's more um, readily available. Like there's definitely more people who are concerned with the environment on a loudspeaker now than it was back when I was growing up, but it's still not enough, right? It's still not enough. It's not reaching down to people the way it should. 
Um, and we definitely need to start making these models available so that other people can reach those goals. Yeah, for sure. And I hope we didn't talk about it this week, but I know that um, there was a recent climate bill um, that was passed. So I'd like to take a closer look at that and what it means. And also, you know, where does it fall short? Because that might show like different gaps that we need to keep pushing, you know, because like Emily said, just making the announcement of agreeing to do something is not enough. Like you have to see the follow through and actually see some results. So I'm glad it happened in Maine, um, but we got to keep pushing until it's everywhere because all of these, you know, Arctic melting and floods and people dying every day because of these changes, it's, we can't keep living like this, man. Exactly. So that's it for this week's Objection to the Rule. Thank you so much for listening. You can catch all of our older episodes on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org or on the Radio Free Brooklyn app or on Spotify. Please keep listening for more independent Brooklyn media. Our final track of the day today is called Local God and it's by Panic at the Disco. We will see you next week. Bye. Bye, everybody.
If you're an Amazon shopper and would like to donate to Radio Free Brooklyn in a way that costs nothing to you, go to RadioFreeBrooklyn.com forward slash Amazon and register FRB as your Amazon Smile charity. Every time you shop, a portion of your purchase benefits Radio Free Brooklyn.
summer came, you were not around. Now the summer's gone and love cannot be found. Where were you when I needed you last winter? My love, when the winter came, you went further south. Parting from love's nest. If you'd like to listen to Radio Free Brooklyn when you're not in front of your computer, please download our free mobile app for iPhone and Android, available in the App Store for iPhone or the Google Play Store for Android. Also, please be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter for the latest news about new programming and upcoming Radio Free Brooklyn events. You can sign up at radiofreebrooklyn.org forward slash newsletter.